Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 17, The Biggest Mistake Nikola Tesla Ever Made, 1890-1891. So, for a podcast about Nikola Tesla, it's been a while since we really talked much about him. When last we left Tesla, he was relaxing in that monastery back in Croatia. I think it's high time we roused him from his vacation. But before we do, I just want to take a second and give a big thank you to all those people who took a minute to like and or leave a rating for the show since our last episode. So, from Facebook we have Dave Anders, Kellis Acosta, D.A. Vore, Kai Chen Sim, Barb Nash. We also have Pascal LaRiviere, who was kind enough to leave a five-star rating and review of the show on the Facebook page. She says, in part, Very interesting and well-documented podcast. I hope that Stephen will carry on with Tesla and maybe other scientists in the future, because it's not only very clever, but also very well told. It makes you feel as if you were watching a movie. And it's addictive. Thanks so much, Pascal. It's always gratifying to hear that people are enjoying the show. When I first started, I wasn't sure that anyone would listen, and even if they did, I wasn't sure they'd find my ramblings about Tesla interesting. And with all the new followers in recent weeks, we're now over 110 followers on Facebook. The download stats are higher than that per episode, but north of 110 fans on Facebook is pretty good, I think, for not even a year and no promotional budget. And a big shout-out, too, to Josie Santos, who left a five-star rating and review on iTunes, saying, Thank you, Stephen, for sharing the info about Tesla. He will always be a great hero. Great info about a very great man. A must-listen. Thanks, Josie. Remember, if you'd like to leave a rating and review and get a shout-out here, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave one there, as it helps the discoverability of the show and means that people will be able to find it more easily when searching about Tesla. Likewise, you can also always join the Tesla The Life and Times podcast Facebook page and leave a rating and review there. So then, with our return to Tesla, we should probably also catch up on what else is happening in 1890, where we join him again. On January 2nd, 1890, Alice Sanger becomes the first female staffer in the White House. On January the 15th, Sleeping Beauty, with music by Tchaikovsky, premieres in St. Petersburg, Russia. February 24th sees Chicago selected to host the Columbian Exposition in 1893. Remember that, it will be important in a couple of episodes. A coordinated series of mass rallies and one-day strikes is held throughout many cities and mining towns in Europe and North America on May 1st to demand an eight-hour workday. Today, May 1st is still celebrated internationally as a labor holiday. In late May, Dutch artist Vincent van Gogh moves to Auvers-sur-Oise on the edge of Paris, in the care of Dr. Paul Gaquet. There, he will produce around 70 paintings in as many days. They will be amongst his final works. June 20th sees the first publication of The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde in Philadelphia-based Lippincott's Monthly Magazine. On June 27th, Canadian-born boxer George Dixon defeats the British bantamweight champion in London, 
giving him claim to be the first black world champion in any sport. In Japan, on July 1st, the very first general election for that country's House of Representatives is held, with about 5% of the adult male population eligible to elect a lower house of the legislature, called the Diet, in accordance with the new Meiji Constitution that took effect later this same year. Also in July, Idaho and Wyoming are admitted as the 43rd and 44th U.S. states. Your fun fact for today, on July 14, 1890, we have the first recorded description in print of lime green as a color. What color exactly people thought limes were before this remains an historical mystery. In November, at West Point, New York, the United States Navy defeats the United States Army 24-0 in the first Army-Navy game of college football. And in England, Scotland Yard, headquarters of the Metropolitan Police Service, moves to a building on London's Victoria Embankment near the Big Ben Clock Tower. It is called, creatively, New Scotland Yard. On December 15th, Lakota leader Sitting Bull is killed by police on Standing Rock Indian Reservation. Then, on December 29th, comes the Wounded Knee Massacre in South Dakota, when the U.S. 7th Cavalry Regiment tries to disperse the non-violent Ghost Dance. You may recall from our episode on the Gilded Age that the Ghost Dance was a new spiritual movement amongst the Plains Indians. It promised to usher in a new era of power and freedom for Native Americans, but the U.S. government feared it as a potentially rallying tool for violent rebellion. When the shooting stopped, 153 Lakota Sioux and 25 federal troops lay dead. About 150 Sioux fled the scene. This is the last tribe to be defeated and confined to a reservation, and marks the end both of the American Indian Wars and, really, the American frontier. Also in 1890, the city of Boise, Idaho, drills the world's first geothermal well. And Francis Galton announces a statistical demonstration of the uniqueness and classifiability of individual human fingerprints. Notable births in 1890 include, on January 9th, Carol Chapek, a Czech playwright and essayist best known for his science fiction, especially the play R.U.R., in which he coined the word robot. On January 19th, Elise Rivette, also known as Mother Mary Elizabeth of the Eucharist, a French Roman Catholic nun and war heroine was born. After the fall of France to the Nazis, she began hiding refugees, including Jewish women and children, in her convent to protect them from the Gestapo. She would eventually also use her convent to store weapons and ammunition for the French resistance. On March 24, 1944, denounced to the Gestapo, she and her assistant were arrested and taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp. There, on March 30, 1945, Good Friday, she volunteered to take the place of a mother in the gas chamber. She died at age 55, only weeks before Germany's unconditional surrender. On January 28th, Robert Franklin Stroud was born. He is best remembered as the Birdman of Alcatraz. A self-taught ornithologist, he not only raised canaries in his cell, but wrote two books about bird diseases and made several important contributions to avian pathology most notably a cure for the hemorrhagic septicemia family of diseases. On February 17th, Ronald Fisher, English statistician and geneticist, was born. He has been described as both, quote, a genius who almost single-handedly created the foundations for modern statistical science, and 
the single most important figure in 20th century statistics. Wearing his geneticist hat, he also did experimental agricultural research, leading to improved strains of staple crops, which saved millions in the 20th century from starvation. Vakislav Molotov, Soviet politician and diplomat, was born on March 9th. A leading figure in the Soviet government under Stalin, Molotov was the principal Soviet signatory of the non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany in 1939, known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, whose most important provision was a secret agreement for the invasion of Poland and partition of its territory between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. His name is probably best remembered today for the Molotov cocktail, which it turns out he didn't actually have anything to do with creating. At least, not directly. It's a term coined by the Finns during the Winter War of 1939-1940, when the invading Soviet Air Force made extensive use of incendiaries and cluster bombs against Finnish troops and fortifications. When Molotov claimed in radio broadcasts that they weren't bombing, but rather delivering food to starving Finns, the Finns started to call the air bombs Molotov breadbaskets. Soon, they responded by attacking Soviet tanks with Molotov cocktails, which they said were, quote, a drink to go with the food. Ho Chi Minh, Prime Minister and later President of North Vietnam, was born on May 19th, we think. His place of birth and date of birth are products of academic conjecture, since neither is known with any certainty. Before he came to power in Vietnam, he is known to have used between 50 and 200 different pseudonyms, which complicates matters. June 1st, Frank Morgan, the American actor best known for playing the Wizard of Oz, amongst other roles, in the movie of the same name, was born. Also born in June of that year were Stan Laurel, one half of Laurel and Hardy, and Rose Kennedy, matriarch of the American political dynasty. In August, Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born. Better known as H.P. Lovecraft, he was an American writer of horror fiction, often a branch known today as Lovecraftian or cosmic horror. He was virtually unknown in his own time, and published only in pulp magazines before he died in poverty, but he is now regarded as one of the most significant, if controversial, 20th century horror authors, having written a number of deeply influential works, including The Dunwich Horror, at the Mountains of Madness, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and what is probably the quintessential Lovecraft story, The Call of Cthulhu. And some researchers have suggested that the character of, forgive me, I'm going to struggle with this, Nyarlathotep, in Lovecraft's 1920 short story of the same name, was inspired by none other than Nikola Tesla. Nyarlathotep is described as a, quote, tall, swarthy man who resembles an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. In a letter to a friend, Lovecraft outlined the nightmare that inspired Nyarlathotep, further describing him as, quote, a kind of itinerant showman or lecturer who held forth in public halls and aroused widespread fear and discussion with his exhibitions. These exhibitions consisted of two parts, first, a horrible, possibly prophetic cinema reel, and later, some extraordinary experiments with scientific and electrical apparatus. I seemed to remember that persons had whispered to me in awe of his horrors, and warn me not to go near him. We'll be talking about one of Tesla's most famous public demonstrations in our next episode. Perhaps an account of it buried itself in Lovecraft's memory somewhere and popped back out as part of his nightmare. In any event, 
We'll have much more to say about Tesla's various incarnations as a pop culture icon, in everything from fiction to TV shows, and even to the old Fleischmann Superman cartoon serials, in a later episode of the podcast. Stay tuned. Colonel Harlan Sanders was born on September 9, 1890. Yes, that Colonel Sanders, the one who founded Kentucky Fried Chicken, and whose image continues to be the main logo of the chain. Sanders perfected his secret recipe and his patented method of cooking chicken in a pressure fryer during the Depression. He would open the first Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise in, of all places, Utah, in 1952. I hated the colonel with his wee beady eyes and that smug look on his face. Oh, you're gonna buy my chicken, oh! Sanders wasn't a military colonel. Rather, he was what is known as a Kentucky colonel an honorary title bestowed by the state of Kentucky in recognition of noteworthy accomplishments and outstanding service to a community, the state, or the nation. However, once he was so honored, Sanders began referring to himself as Colonel. His friends and colleagues went along with the title at first as a joke, but later in earnest. Committed to his brand, for the last 20 years of his life, Sanders always appeared in a white suit and string tie and bleached his mustache and goatee to match his white hair. In September, Agatha Christie, famed English mystery novelist, was born. In October were born Groucho Marx, the American comedian, Dwight D. Eisenhower, U.S. General, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe during World War II, and 34th President of the United States, and Michael Collins, Irish revolutionary, soldier, and politician, who was a leading figure in the early 20th century Irish struggle for independence. Charles de Gaulle, future president of France, was born in November. Fritz Lang, German-Austrian filmmaker, screenwriter, and actor, was born December 5th. If you've never seen his 1927 science fiction masterpiece Metropolis, do yourself a favor and do so right away. Seriously, pause the podcast and go watch it right now. We'll wait. And on December 25th, believe it or not, Robert Ripley, American collector of odd facts, was born. Notable deaths in 1890 include Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man, who died in April. Henri Nestle, Swiss confectioner and the founder of the Nestle Company, who died in July. Vincent van Gogh dies on July 29th, two days after being shot in the stomach. His cause of death is usually billed as suicide. Van Gogh had a troubled history with his mental health, You've probably all heard that bit about him slicing off part of his own ear. And the cause of his melancholy has been attributed over the years to everything from bipolar disorder to temporal lobe epilepsy with bouts of depression, and even to the blood disorder porphyria. While it's entirely possible that Van Gogh killed himself, and is perhaps even probable, in 2011, authors Stephen Nyfe and Greg Whitesmith published a biography, Van Gogh, The Life in which they challenged the conventional account of the artist's death. In the book, they argue that it was unlikely for Van Gogh to have killed himself, noting the upbeat disposition of the paintings he created immediately preceding his death. Furthermore, in private correspondence, Van Gogh described suicide as sinful and immoral. The authors also question how Van Gogh could have traveled the mile-long distance between the wheat field and the inn after sustaining a fatal stomach wound, how Van Gogh could have obtained a gun despite his well-known mental health problems, and why Van Gogh's painting gear was never found by the police. Nyfe and Smith developed an alternative hypothesis in which Van Gogh did not commit suicide, 
but rather was a possible victim of accidental manslaughter at the hands of some local youth he knew and had been drinking with that day. While we'll probably never know what actually happened, their argument and evidence strikes me as compelling. Of course, on August 6th, at Auburn Prison in New York, William Kemmler became the first person to be executed in the electric chair. And finally, near the end of the year, Heinrich Schliemann, German archaeologist and discoverer of the fabled city of Troy, dies at age 68. He was an advocate of the historic authenticity of places mentioned in the works of Homer. His discovery of the remains of Troy, as well as Mycenaean sites Mycenae and Tyrans, lent weight to the idea that Homer's Iliad reflects historical events. Now then, as they used to say in the old radio serials, When last we left our hero... As we mentioned, Tesla had retreated to a monastery in Croatia to relax and recover from a trying year in Pittsburgh. He'd made his way to Croatia after a trip to Paris as a member of the delegation from the American Institute of Electrical Engineers to the Congrès International des Électriciens. While there, Tesla witnessed a demonstration lecture of vibrating diaphragms by the young Norwegian physicist Wilhelm Birkins. It's likely that Birkins introduced Tesla to Heinrich Hertz's discovery of electromagnetic waves. After the frustrations of his time with Westinghouse, Tesla found Hertz's discovery, quote, like ever so many refreshing berries found on the road by a weary wanderer. When he returned to New York, he went to work in a new laboratory at 175 Grand Street. This lab consisted of one room divided by partitions. Tesla's backer, Brown, complained that the space was too small for the work that he thought ought to be done. There, Tesla would begin work on high-frequency apparatus, wireless transmission, and theories on the relationship between electromagnetic radiation and light. When Tesla returned to Manhattan, he was the picture of European elegance, a tall, slender man in the prime of life, impeccably dressed in the finest hand-tailored Parisian styles, right down to a cane, spats, and soft leather shoes. His newfound wealth allowed him to indulge his habit, doubtless driven by his obsessive compulsive issues and noted germophobia, of throwing away his fine kid leather gloves and silk handkerchiefs after only a single week's use. While such behavior was likely compelled by his mental health challenges, the extravagant wasting of money was to be a recurrent theme in Tesla's life from this point forward. Case in point, after his sojourn in Pittsburgh, Tesla had come to enjoy the convenience and amenities that came with life in a luxury hotel. So, after inspecting numerous Manhattan venues, he elected to live in the Astor House, New York's first luxury hotel, located at Broadway and Vesey, conveniently near his lab. For the rest of his life, Tesla would never again live anywhere but in a hotel. He began to dine nightly at Delmonico's at 5th Avenue and 26th Street, at that time the most famous restaurant in America, serving only the finest in French cuisine and wines. Tesla was, once again, our Parisian. The staff quickly came to understand Tesla's particular needs. His table, always reserved for him, was to be equipped with a stack of 18 pristine napkins. Tesla used them to wipe off each piece of silverware, china, and crystal stemware before using them, and would then drop the napkin to the floor to be scooped and removed by the staff. Another expression of his germophobia. 
Despite the fancy clothes and the expensive meals, Tesla remained dedicated to his electric dreams and still worked seven days a week in his laboratory, working through the night when distractions could be minimized and concentration completely focused, and returning to the Astor House in the wee hours for five hours rest, reportedly only two of which were actually spent sleeping. To help with the experiments at Grand Street, Tesla assembled a small team of craftsmen. He hired a glassblower, two mechanics, and an electrician who he'd first worked with on the arc lighting systems back in Rahway. But his key assistant was, once again, Zagetti, who had stayed behind in New York while Tesla was in Pittsburgh, maintaining Tesla's lab and working on various experiments and apparatus that Tesla assigned him. He was a man who had a considerable amount of ingenuity and intelligence, Tesla would later say of Zagetti. He was not exactly a theoretical man, as myself, but he could understand every idea fully. So long as he was in my employ, he was, I may say, a very intimate friend of mine, and I treated him as well as I possibly could. During this time, Tesla's experiments were still conducted under the aegis of the Tesla Electric Company, the firm organized by Peck and Brown. In March and April 1890, Tesla filed three additional patents on AC motors and assigned them to this company. They were to be the last patents he assigned to the company. Peck fell ill and moved to Asheville, North Carolina, in the hopes of regaining his health. He died in the summer of 1890. Although Tesla continued to consult Brown over the next few years, Brown could not provide the shrewd business judgment that Peck had contributed to Tesla's early success with the AC motor. And though he couldn't know it, Tesla was entering into a period when he could have used Peck's sound financial advice, perhaps more than ever. A second tragedy followed close on this one's heels. Anthony Zagetti also died in the summer of 1890 while still a young man. Tesla wrote home telling his uncle Pajo, I feel alienated, and it is difficult for me to adapt to the American lifestyle. In his letters home, we get another curious insight into the family life of Nikola Tesla. He wrote almost entirely to his sister's husbands, all of whom were priests. Somehow it is hard to correspond with the ladies, Tesla would confess in a letter to his uncle Pajo. Tesla sent money home to his mother and his sisters, and even some of his cousins, often in sums of 150 fortins, which was equivalent to six months' salary back in Croatia and Serbia. And in reply, his sisters would write back and ask Nikola to send a more personal letter too from, as they said, the only brother that we have. When deciding what area of electrical research to pursue next, Tesla saw three possibilities. High voltages, high currents, or high frequencies. He settled on high frequencies, as it was the least explored. He saw in high frequencies the potential to make a contribution not only to technology, but also to theoretical science. What better work could one do, asked Tesla, than inventing methods and devising means for enabling scientific men to push investigation far out into these practically unknown regions? In fact, Tesla had been curious about high frequencies for some time. Prior to going to Pittsburgh in 1888, he had started thinking about how to run his motors on the existing Westinghouse circuits, which, as you'll recall from episode 12, used 133-cycle single-phase alternating current. He also wanted to increase the speed of his own motors. To address the two issues, Tesla designed a new AC generator. He increased the number of poles in the stator from 4 to 24, which meant an increased speed of the alternator. 
this new generator would end up generating currents at 2,000 cycles per second. But by the time he opened the shop on Grand Street, Tesla wondered whether it was possible to generate currents with a frequency of up to 20,000 cycles per second. He built several alternators with hundreds of electromagnets in their rotor and stator, carefully trying to balance the design to get the maximum cycles while also minimizing the waste heat generated in the iron or steel cores, likening his struggle to that of Odysseus, trying to thread his way between the monsters Scylla and Charybdis. Tesla's first patent for a high-frequency generator was as a method for powering arc lights. During the 1890s, arc lights, widely used for street and factory lighting, were only run on DC current, because when run on AC current, they created an annoying sizzling sound proportional to the frequency of the alternating current. Tesla discovered, however, that when run on high frequency, the sizzle moved beyond the range of human hearing, making AC power feasible for arc lights at last. His next invention was probably his most famous, and the one that still bears his name, the Tesla coil. Tesla was among the first people, if not the first, in North America to replicate the experiments of Hertz that he had first encountered in Paris. Hertz had conducted experiments proving the existence of electromagnetic waves that moved through space. Using an induction coil, Hertz demonstrated that whenever sparks, which are a sudden rush of electric current, were produced at his induction coil, he could also detect sparks elsewhere in his laboratory using a copper loop with a spark gap. Sparks would leap across the gap seemingly from nowhere, and when not connected to any power source. This was only possible if the electromagnetic field from the induction coil moved through space. But Tesla was unhappy with the apparatus Hertz had used, and decided to construct his own refined design. Hooking up Hertz's device to his high-frequency generator, Tesla was able to ramp up the cycles from the few hundred Hertz used into the tens of thousands of cycles per second. Given the increases of heat, traditional insulating materials like paraffin wax would simply melt. As a solution, Tesla did away with insulating in favor of an air gap that acted as insulation between the primary and secondary coils. I can't help but notice here the parallels of Tesla thinking sideways about something, dropping the traditional insulation from these generators in the way that he had dropped the commutator from AC motors. Tesla adjusted his capacitor and induction coil so that each electromagnetic wave came just as the current in the induction coil reached its maximum. In doing so, Tesla was taking advantage of the principle of resonance, that one portion of the circuit would reinforce another and boost the output. By creating resonance, Tesla was soon able to produce a current that alternated up to 30,000 times per second. Fascinated with how resonance could create such powerful effects, Tesla looked for other places where he could take advantage of resonance, and it quickly became the new ideal guiding his efforts with high-frequency phenomenon. Tesla called this invention his oscillating transformer, but as it came to be widely used by other investigators, it also became known as the Tesla coil. The oscillating transformer was a fundamental component of much of Tesla's later work on wireless power, and he felt that it was one of his greatest discoveries. As he recalled later, quote, when in 1900 I obtained powerful discharges of 100 feet and flashed a current around the globe, I was reminded of the first tiny spark I observed in my Grand Street laboratory, and was thrilled by sensations akin to those I felt when I discovered the rotating magnetic field. In using his high-frequency generator and his oscillating transformer together, Tesla soon learned about the physiological effects of high-frequency currents, 
effects he would later use to dazzle crowds the world over. Early on in his experiments, Tesla accidentally touched the terminals of an oscillating transformer and the high frequency current passed through his body. Now, Tesla was normally very careful about what he touched in his lab when current was live, to the point where he would routinely keep one hand in a pocket during tests just in case he should come in contact with a live component. Electricity always follows the path of least resistance, meaning it takes the shortest route out of your body. One hand in a pocket would prevent the current from taking the shortcut across Tesla's chest and through the heart on its way out his other hand. The heart, of course, is in its own way a finely tuned electrical machine, and you don't want to be messing around with the volts and amps that keep it running. But much to Tesla's surprise, he wasn't injured by this encounter. He realized that the secondary coil he came in contact with had a high voltage but a small amperage. Tesla concluded in February 1891 that, quote, the higher the frequency, the greater the amount of electrical energy which may be passed through the body without serious discomfort. Please don't try this at home. As we understand today, currents that are in the radio frequency range, that is, from around 20,000 oscillations per second, or 20 kilohertz, to around 300 billion oscillations per second, 300 gigahertz, actually travel along the skin and don't harm nerves or internal organs during short exposure. It was this skin effect phenomenon that Tesla was to use to great effect in his public demonstrations of alternating current, in which he would always emphasize its safety over DC current. He would grasp one end of a terminal of his high-frequency apparatus and take tens of thousands of volts through his body, enough energy to brilliantly illuminate a light bulb held in his other hand. It was the way that he was able to step through cascades of electrical arcs without injury. See David Bowie's entrance as Tesla in the Christopher Nolan film The Prestige for good illustration of this. I'll put a link on the show's website at teslapodcast.com. And how Tesla was able to surround himself with an electrical nimbus like tongues of fire during demonstrations. Again, I'll include a drawing from a magazine report of Tesla's demonstrations. As Tesla began playing around more with his oscillating transformer, he began to replicate experiments with what are called Geissler tubes, a forerunner of today's neon lights. These experiments used electric sparks to render gases incandescent. What Tesla noticed first was a phenomenon called Jacob's Ladder. When he placed two Geissler bulbs connected to his oscillating transformer close together, the spark jumped between them at the point where the gap between the bulbs was the smallest and then climbed up the sides of the spheres extinguishing itself at the top and starting over again at the narrowest gap. You've surely seen this phenomenon used in, say, Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory or any B-movie description of a mad scientist's lab. But Tesla noticed something unusual. When the spark between the bulbs reached the top of its climb and was extinguished, the Geissler tubes lying nearby lit up and then extinguished in unison with that spark. He also noticed that the tubes didn't light up when they were at right angles to the induction coil. They had to be in parallel with the terminals and the spark. This suggested to Tesla that the tubes were lit up as a result of the electric field produced by the spark, not by the electromagnetic waves. If waves were causing the tubes to glow, he reasoned, then the position wouldn't have mattered. Tesla repeated the experiment with vacuum tubes without any electrodes and was amazed to find that these two became illuminated. This led Tesla, not for the last time, to decide that a major and widely held scientific theory was wrong and that he, Tesla, was right. 
His experiments with Geissler tubes made Tesla believe that the findings of Hertz and Maxwell about the nature of electromagnetic waves were in error, and that it was what he called electrostatic thrusts, not Hertzian waves, that caused the tubes to glow. I mention this because, while Tesla was ultimately proved wrong, it shows just how certain of his own findings, and dismissive of counter-argument, Tesla could be when he was convinced he was in the right. He would later similarly voice objections to the theory of relativity and the nature of space-time proposed by Einstein. His rejection of electromagnetic waves was the first hint that Tesla would spend much of his career making himself an outsider to the scientific consensus and establishment. The kind of maverick style and faith in his own insights that served him so well in the radical break that was his leap to an AC motor that did away with the commutator would later betray him as he strayed farther and farther from the advancing science of his day. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The first thing Tesla did with this newfound method for powering Geissler tubes was to set up a surprise demonstration. During one of his not infrequent all-night work sessions, Tesla sent his men out at 3 a.m. to get something to eat. When they returned, they found him standing in the middle of the laboratory, holding a long glass tube in each hand. Neither tube was connected to anything. If my theory is correct, Tesla told them, when the switch is thrown, these tubes will become swords of fire. He then ordered the room darkened, the switch thrown, and instantly the glass tubes lit up. Under the influence of great exultation, Tesla recalled, I waved them in circles round and around my head. My men were actually scared. So new and wonderful was the spectacle. They had not known of my wireless light theory, and for a moment they thought I was some kind of magician or hypnotizer. Tesla now knew wireless lighting was a reality, and that he had a demonstration to capture the imagination of audiences and new investors. At this point, we need to jump back to check in on George Westinghouse. Not as a check-in on the War of the Currents exactly, but rather what we might call the War of the Contracts. Because during the winter of 1890-1891, Westinghouse found himself and his company in deep financial trouble. Sales had boomed for Westinghouse after the introduction of the AC product line, but like any business, this was a mixed blessing as Westinghouse faced the added expense of developing staff and enlarging his factories. Westinghouse had also been in a buying frenzy, as he, Edison General Electric, and Thomson Houston all competed to buy up smaller electric companies as fast as they could, when not suing one another for various patent infringements, another added expense. Westinghouse helped finance this expansion by advancing the company $1.2 million of his own money, as well as borrowing heavily. By mid-1890, the firm had $3 million in short-term liabilities, but only about $2.5 million in current assets. You can see where this is going, right? In November 1890, a major London brokerage house, Baring Brothers, which the New York Times called, quote, the greatest banking house of all the world, a firm whose business connections have extended for a century or more to the uttermost limits of the habitable globe, whose signature has stood always and everywhere for an absolute guarantee, collapsed. This was sensational beyond anything that Wall Street had even suspected or dreamed of, the Times continued. One financial writer went farther still. If the solvency of the Bank of England had been questioned, it could not carry a more severe shock. 
In another echo of the Gilded Age in our own era, the American banks of the Gilded Age, while appearing solid and enduring on the face of things, were actually, quote, flimsy financial structures liable to collapse under the slightest economic ill wind. One need only to think back about ten years to the global financial panic and Great Recession caused by the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis to understand what things were like. However, in this era of pre-Keynesian laissez-faire economics, with effectively no meaningful bank legislation, no deposit insurance for investors, and a government that wasn't about to bail out a too-big-to-fail bank, the economy was in even more peril. Anticipating a panicked run on the banks as investors sought to withdraw their holdings, Westinghouse's creditors called in their loans. The Westinghouse company was forced into receivership, and George Westinghouse struggled for the next two years to save the company. Westinghouse Electric stock, originally valued at $50, plummeted to $13 a share. Not getting any help from Pittsburgh bankers, Westinghouse eventually found backers on Wall Street who set about reorganizing the company. According to O'Neill's biography of Tesla, Prodigal Genius, the investor insisted that if Westinghouse wanted to retain control of his company, he would have to terminate Tesla's contract, which called for royalty payments of $2.50 per horsepower for each motor installed. O'Neill claimed that the investors insisted on terminating the contract to avoid paying Tesla millions of dollars in royalties and that this money would have helped support much of Tesla's subsequent research. However, viewed from the perspective of early 1891, it's unlikely that Tesla's royalty payments would have been a major cost for the company. Based on the terms of the 1888 contract between Tesla, Peck, and Brown, Westinghouse would have paid about $105,000 in royalties by 1891, with Tesla receiving about $47,000 of that. Because there were only a handful of AC power systems that could employ Tesla's motors, Westinghouse had sold very few and had probably not paid any significant royalties prior to 1891. Remember, at this point, the Westinghouse engineers had not yet solved the technical difficulties related to Tesla's motor designs, so no one had any reason to worry that Tesla's royalty payments might amount to millions of dollars. Tesla's motor did prove to be a commercial success when they sorted out the issue by the late 1890s, but there was no way to anticipate that in early 1891. More likely, the investors insisted that Westinghouse cancel the contract with Tesla because they wanted to rein in George Westinghouse, and not from fear that Tesla's royalties would run into the millions. As one Pittsburgh banker, who later refused to bail out Westinghouse, complained, quote, Mr. Westinghouse wastes so much on experimentation and pays so liberally for whatever he wishes in the way of service and patent rights that we are taking a pretty large risk if we give him a free hand with the fund he has asked us to raise. We ought to at least know what he is doing with our money. At the same time, the investment committee wanted more say in the affairs of the reorganized Westinghouse company, seeing Westinghouse as, quote, a bright and fertile mechanic who lacked an understanding of high finance and who had to be sidelined for his own good and that of his company. Reluctantly, then, Westinghouse went to Tesla and asked him to give up the contract and help him retain control of the company. No one knows for sure exactly what happened between the men. Mark Seifer, in his Tesla biography Wizard, suggests that Westinghouse made a tacit commitment to Tesla that he would get the company to resume work on adapting the AC motor if Tesla struck out the $2.50 per watt royalty clause in the contract. 
But O'Neill, who claimed Tesla was his direct source, recounts the exchange between Westinghouse and Tesla in this way. Your decision, said the Pittsburgh magnate, determines the fate of the Westinghouse company. Suppose I should refuse to give up my contract, what would you do then? In that event, you would have to deal with the bankers, for I would no longer have any power in the situation, Westinghouse replied. And if I give up the contract, you will save your company and retain control so you can proceed with your plans to give my polyphase system to the world? I believe your polyphase system is the greatest discovery in the field of electricity, Westinghouse explained. It was my efforts to give it to the world that brought on the present difficulty, but I intend to continue, no matter what happens, to proceed with my original plans to put the country on an alternating current basis. Mr. Westinghouse, said Tesla, drawing himself up to his full height of six feet two inches and beaming down on the Pittsburgh magnate, who was himself a big man, you have been my friend, you believed in me when others had no faith. You were brave enough to go ahead and pay me when others lacked courage. You supported me when even your own engineers lacked vision to see the big things ahead of you that I saw. You have stood by me as a friend. The benefits that will come to civilization from my polyphase system mean more to me than the money involved. Mr. Westinghouse, you will save your company so that you can develop my inventions. Here is your contract, and here is my contract. I will tear both of them to pieces, and you will no longer have any troubles for my royalties. Is that sufficient? A grand flourish, to be sure, and a show of loyalty to Westinghouse. But was Tesla's selflessness really all that was going on? O'Neill, recall, was trying to make Tesla out to be a Superman demigod of science, so may not be the most objective reporter when it comes to Tesla's motives. Tesla may well have been thinking about his own future, in terms of who would control his patents should Westinghouse collapse or be bought out. If Tesla retained the contract, then he would be negotiating with the investors instead of Westinghouse, and they might not be so inclined to spend money to develop or promote his inventions. O'Neill suggested that Tesla preferred to continue to deal with Westinghouse on an informal basis and trust that the Pittsburgh magnate would continue to support him in some way. And let's not forget Tesla's own pride and vanity. Tesla had a high, and ultimately correct, opinion of the historical importance of his invention. He realized that it would alter the world beneficially in measurable ways, not least of all, by replacing hundreds of thousands of hours of manual labor, which, as he saw it, would free people up for leisure and creative pursuits, free of the drudgery of labor. He knew that his system was the most efficient, that it was fundamental, and that if adopted, it would prevail. Tesla wasn't thinking in terms of a balance sheet. Instead, he assumed that if he helped Westinghouse out of his jam, that Westinghouse would somehow reciprocate. Speaking of Westinghouse many years later, Tesla said, quote, George Westinghouse was, in my opinion, the only man on the globe who could take my alternating current system under the circumstances then existing and win the battle against prejudice and money power. He was a pioneer of imposing stature and one of the world's noblemen. Privately, however, Tesla's feelings were more mixed. He would maintain a close relationship over the decades with Westinghouse. But in his letters, there is often an undercurrent of resentment on Tesla's part due mainly, it seems, to lack of appreciation by Westinghouse of Tesla's sacrifice and continuing contribution to the company. Tesla was also upset because the full scope of his patents became simplified and implications arose suggesting that he merely invented an induction motor and not an entire power system. But all that was in the future. 
In the moment, Tesla did agree to waive his $2.50 per horsepower royalty, and while how much that decision helped save the Westinghouse company is debatable, nevertheless, Westinghouse was able to pull things out of the fire. Yet, we have to wonder what might have happened if Tesla had refused to forego his royalties, or if he had proposed taking a reduced or deferred royalty. There's certainly a part of you that wants to shout, Don't do it, Nico! when reading about Westinghouse's proposal. O'Neill is certainly exaggerating when he claims the lost royalties, which, remember, Tesla was splitting with Peck and Brown, would have amounted to millions. Likewise, W. Bernard Carlson is perhaps too dismissive of the difference that such royalties could have made to Tesla, especially once the AC motor really took off later in the 1890s. The AC patents didn't expire until 1905, and surely 15 years of additional royalty would have helped Tesla and his research. Would he have had money saved up for his later years, so that he could continue his experiments with his global system? Would Tesla not have died in poverty? Or would the Westinghouse company have indeed collapsed? As we'll see in upcoming episodes, the extra royalties might not have mattered. Tesla seemed constitutionally incapable of handling money in a responsible way. He loved the finer things in life, only the best of everything, and spent money like water. He would throw extravagant parties, give outlandish tips and bonuses to his staff, fail to monetize his inventions, instead relying on the largesse of patrons like Westinghouse, and later the Astors and the House of Morgan. There is every possibility, perhaps even probability, that Tesla would have frittered away the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars he might have received during that 15-year window of additional royalty. Or maybe he wouldn't have. We'll simply never know. Next time, Tesla is convinced to give another lecture before the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, this time about his work with high-frequency current. While his first speech to the AIEE announced his arrival to his peers in the electrical field, this second one would announce him to the world and make him the toast of New York high society. Get ready for a show. Thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. As always, please spread the word, recommend the show to a friend, or share a link to the latest episodes via your social media. It really does help. Please take just a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review like the ones I mentioned at the top of the show. As reviews come in, I'll be sure to do a shout out as a thank you. Past episodes can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list, you can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Dad, how can you hate the colonel? Because he puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly, smart arse! In August 2016, the Chicago Tribune claimed to have cracked Colonel Sanders' original top-secret recipe. So, if you too would like to fry up some colonel-approved chicken, here's how you do it. Mix the following 11 herbs and spices into 2 cups of white flour. And for some reason, these are all in tablespoons, so bear with me. Two-thirds of a tablespoon of salt, half a tablespoon of thyme, half a tablespoon of basil, a third of a tablespoon of oregano, one tablespoon celery salt, 
1 tablespoon black pepper, preferably telecherry, 1 tablespoon dried mustard, 4 tablespoons paprika, 2 tablespoons garlic salt, 1 tablespoon ground ginger, 3 tablespoons white pepper. Soak chicken pieces in buttermilk overnight. Dredge once in the seasoned flour mixture, and then fry in oil at 350 degrees Fahrenheit until golden brown. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some chicken to go make. (laughs) 